0: My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the show. We're talking with writer Douglas Copeland, who changed the world when he defined Generation X with the title of his first novel. He's written nonfiction in City of Glass and Polaroids from the Dead, and his fiction includes Girlfriend in a Coma, All Families Are Psychotic, and his most recent novel, Hey Nostradamus. Welcome to the show, Doug. Oh, Rick, hello. Hi. Let's get this question out of the way first, because I've had about 10 people wanting to know... What are the years in which those who you would classify as part of Generation X would have been born?
1: Oh, boy. In my head, it's not so much a year thing as an attitude thing. If you can remember hearing Blondie on AM radio for the first time and saying to yourself, oh, my God, they're playing Blondie on AM, then you would fall roughly into that vague category called X. Well,
0: that includes me, to be sure. Tell us a bit about writing this breakthrough novel.
1: I used to think that the last taboo in our culture was loneliness, that if you were to walk into a room filled with people and you were to say, like, hey, I'm lonely, let's talk about it, that everyone would just flee the room. And then I got to thinking that there's really no space or place in, well, I'm from Vancouver, which is basically just an isotope of San Francisco, which is an isotope of Seattle. There's nowhere and no way to discuss religion, and it's... I mean, I'm not doctrinaire, and I come from a secular upbringing, but I do think I think about it more than most people, and I hope that doesn't sound presumptuous, and since there's no way to talk about it, I wanted to create some kind of window or a door that would allow people to at least be able to think about it. I mean, now the book is out, and it's only been out two weeks, so not that many people have read it, but the people in my life, they read it, and Actually, still feels just as awkward discussing it as it did before. So I don't. It's frustrating in a way, but at the same time, I had to do it.
0: Can you tell our listeners, in terms of plot, what you want them to know about the novel before reading it?
1: I mean, mechanically, I mean, the story follows the lives of four characters who, in one way or another, are connected to a Columbine-like shooting that takes place in Vancouver in 1988. And then, on the other hand, I mean, to trivialize it, but at the same time give a not bad description, is that it's like that reality show Survivor, but instead of seeing who's the last person on the island, it's who's the person who ends up being redeemed in the end. Because you're following the lives of these characters, and they're all kind of, well, they're all damaged goods in their own way. I mean, who isn't? Uh, But who at the end of it is completely transformed? in a miraculous way, and so it's almost a mystery in that way.
0: Interesting. It, it is a mystery. I thought of it as a mystery, but in a completely different way. Now tell us about the structure of the novel, which seems fairly rigorous.
1: Oh, you have to have structure for a novel. And, and you also, my experience, and from other writers I've spoken with, is you have to know the last chapter in your head. You almost have to have it completely written And that way, I liken it very simply to taking a trip. You're driving to Philadelphia and you know that's the destination and you know the highways you're probably going to take to get there. And you might be diverted. You might end up in jail along the way. You might visit a theme park, but in the end, you still get to Philadelphia. And rigorous structure, oh yeah, there's four voices alternating back and forth. Uh, And without that, I don't think this book could have worked.
0: Now, this structure really, paradoxically, it frees the novel and it makes it a lot more fun to read.
1: Oh God, I mean, if it makes, when you write a book, you're asking someone, A, give me your money, B, give me all these hours of your life, and, and then they have this thing in front of them, the book, and then you have to be able to get people through the book, and, and, it's almost like an engine or the locomotive just pulls you through and that's plot and character of course and the underlying message. I I can't imagine writing a book or reading one that at least had some possibility of transforming myself after having read it. This book I think I was changed a bit in writing this book here and I would hope that anyone else who read it would be not changed or transformed, but just would think about things a little bit differently.
0: And what you'd be thinking about differently is, of course, spirituality. How did the current events you mirror in this novel bring about your meditations on spirituality?
1: Well, I started writing this book when I got back from the last book tour, which is December 2001. And I think everyone was still sort of numb and shell-shocked from September 11th in a way, we probably always will be. I mean, it's, a, it's so weird and vast as to be almost incomprehensible. And like anyone else out there, I'm an antenna picking up this sort of collective sorrow and confusion. And it just happened to, and this is really strange, Rick. Suddenly v- Columbine, you need a p- piece of dust to form a raindrop. And that was the piece of dust, and this is the raindrop that came from it. Um, I guess maybe because Columbine back in 2001 had had enough time passed that we could be a bit more objective about it, that we could think about it more in terms of what it meant about us as a society and the people who did it and were involved. If you follow that same line of thinking, I, I mean, when will we start making movies or plays or books that fictionalize or deal with characters who might have been in like Aeon or Cantor or Fitzgerald or you know, windows on the world during the first or second impact. I mean, whenever that happens, that's going to be one hell of a shocking play. I mean, I... Is anyone doing it? I hope so. Maybe I'll do it, but can you imagine a play that took place up on windows in the world on that morning? And, oh, God, hang on, I'm losing it. It would be really... Well, you know, the fact that it makes me feel this way means it's something that maybe needs to be done. So...
0: It's a chilling thought, to be sure. I, oh, boy. Literally. With a girl speaking from the afterlife, comparisons to The Lovely Bones are somewhat inevitable. Your afterlife is considerably different from that by Alice old.
1: Oh, oh, God. Wait, just to clear the record. Like, <laughs> this is all... <laughs> Off to my editor before Lovely Bones came oh, out. Thank okay, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that's the case. But, but then also, on the other hand, I don't think you've read mother books, Rick. I've, I've used dead teenage narrators before. Okay. So, so maybe Alice oh. is the one who should be uh, <laughs> in trial here. Um, so for myself, it's not an entirely new thing to have a, a young dead narrator. There's a certain wonderful detachment that I became attracted to when I saw the play, um, Our Town by Thornton Wilder. I mean, I think we've all seen it, have you? No, actually not. Oh, God, I can't believe it. It's it's Spalding Gray did a really good version of it. And it's just this shocking Sherwood-Anderson-like portrait of small-town America, circa, I'm guessing, 1900. And then the main character, Emily, uh, she dies during childbirth. And then suddenly she's assembled with all the other in a cemetery with all the other town folk. And the world is slipping away from them bit by bit and oh man it, it's i couldn't sleep i mean i saw this about 10 years ago and a very powerful effect so you know from death you get that detachment and i did read lovely bones and it was wonderful mm-hmm. and uh i think maybe alice bold was going for the same sort of detachment that you have to have to deal with something that's truly really horrible
0: what kind of research did you do to create what seemed to me to be a very authentic portrait of a teenage girl. Do you have teenagers?
1: No. You know what? I just make things up. I wish I could say that I, you know, hung out and talked to the kids and everything, but I just make this stuff up. You did a great job.
0: (laughs) Tell us about how you combine humor and horror.
1: Oh, I love black humor or dark humor, gallows humor. And that's probably... A Canadian thing, by way of England. Well, the Brits love nothing but like a good guillotine joke or something. And it's not to say that this book is like a ha ha funny book. Um, Though I must th- admit, th- I laughed out loud. There's are some a dark, lot. <laughs> there are some pretty dark moments. Um, I mean, I, just as a constant litmus in my head, I did say, okay, if I was a parent of a child who had been, you know, affected by Columbine. Would I would I be insulted by what I was reading, and or would I feel that the memory was being respected, and as long as it passed that test, I was okay with it. I mean, it's uh, I mean Rick, Rick, I know you have some teenagers yourself. I mean, I almost feel like asking you, like, how would, how did you feel, when Columbine happened?
0: I I felt. Not surprised. <laughs> really. Not not surprised. Huh. It's there's a such a variety of behavior across all teenagers, across all kids.
1: Yeah. I mean, one, one reviewer said, I was New York Times in a very strange review, said, the book took place in 1988 and we didn't have teenage high school shootings back then as if this was this huge flaw. And I thought, oh, gee, we only had postal rampages and, you know, whatever back then that... Like, <sighs> It just really strikes me as it strikes me as a really strange thing to have pointed out that like, we didn't have a certain kind of random killing until, as if that brands it in time and space. That was really odd.
0: Well, it just seems to me that uh, as the population increases, certain behaviors that might have been incredibly rare or, in fact, non existent are going to become more and more existent in, in the increasing media coverage. Yeah. more
1: well known in, in Canada there's this wonderful TV commercial um, Canada like Japan is trying to combat bullying in the high schools because it, it's a big issue and what they do is they take um, this guy who's getting off an elevator to go to work at some job at an office building and someone bumps into him and knocks his like briefcase down and opens and like says ha, and then he walks around the corner and someone else takes his lunch bag ooh I'll be having this today uh, the behavior that we allow and accept as normal for children will be appalling for adults and that you know maybe we really ought to apply adult standards to kids in a lot of way i don't think childhood should be so enshrined or as glorified as it is i mean i i remember being 10 and just wanting desperately to be an adult and and i was always sort of insulted by you go to the store and like the kids zone and kids is spelled with a z and in that kooky crayon lettering and like forget it. I wanted martinis. I wanted Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. I didn't want kid stuff. Most novels
0: that revolve around a crime focus on the perpetrators and the police. They're what I would call pre-crime novels. You utterly ignore those factors, and so tell us about writing a post-crime novel.
1: We all grew up with the fables, and they lived happily ever after, and I'm only ever interested in a story like what comes after they lived happily ever after, which is where we become human and do horrible things to each other and say the wrong things and and hurt each other and do good things as well. And in one sense, uh, high school shooting or that sort of event, it's almost like an Old Testament visitation or something, just a a trial that was sent down to test the humans. And I I think the first part of the book is very much deals with, I think they're called the the theodicies of Job it's the questions that are brought up by um, suffering which happens to you and and you know one of the net results of thinking about that is bad things are almost like weather I mean there's a storm out there or it's beautiful or what have you but it doesn't have to do with you you just happen to be there and they just happen to be there and this happened and how do normal people respond to things in my work to date it's actually quite Vonnegut like in the way that things happen to very average people. I'm I'm from the suburbs, I'm very middle class. I, I can't conceal that. And you know, we strive as a culture to insulate ourselves that way. But what happens is something happens within the insulation and, and again that's what I think we're all fascinated by, really. Yeah. And on the other hand, you know what, I'm a I'm addicted to Law and Order, the T V show. God, I love that show. And it's spin-off shows as well.
0: How do the events that play out in this life influence Jason's take on
1: spirituality?
0: He carries the bulk of the novel.
1: Well, Jason is the boyfriend of a young girl, a woman who killed uh, in the shooting. Turns out he's actually her husband. And he's coming from... A family where the father is sort of an Old Testament God who is very harsh and very unforgiving and very demanding in his own way quite arbitrary it's like he substitutes his own law for God's law or that's how he would phrase it and I'm not being doctrinaire here that's just the father Jason is trying to figure out where you find peace in a world after something fantastically awful has happened I mean that's the human story from year zero right up to now. I guess what I'm interested in
0: is how these events that take place and the random things that happen to him afterwards, the kind of scattershot feeling of going from one thing to the next Mm. that happens to Jason, how do these influence his spiritual life?
1: Well, I I created Jason, he's part of me, so it's gotta be a reflection of some of my perceptions of life. My life has been very scattershot I, mean, I think when we're young we do have this protective, naive coding, it's called youth, that allows us to make the stupidest and riskiest and dumbest decisions quite blithely without any thoughts of the ramifications. I went to art school, I never I knew I was never gonna have a job job and and then I went no thing semi okay as a sculptor, I mean paying the bills and that and then I discovered writing by accident and it was a way of paying the bills and, and I mean if you look at the US government's list of jobs or occupations, which will make you successful and rich, down at the bottom around six hundred and seventy-one, sculpture. Right beneath it is you know six seventy-two, fiction writing. And my life feels like an accident or serendipity or whatever. I mean, I, I took some risk and made some choices, which at the age of forty-one, good God, I'm appalled. So life, there's just so much accident to life. Life's just so accidental. You can plan only to a
0: certain degree. One of the more interesting portions of your books, to this book to me, was um, the sequences with Heather and the psychics. Mm. Are psychics the lazy man's guide to the afterlife?
1: Oh, I don't believe in psychics, whatever. It's all hogwash. I mean, I've never believed in it. And anyone who can pretend to see tomorrow is just out to pick your wallet, trust me. Um, How did you
0: research that, or did you...
1: It's just I've always believed that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think. I think you can make assessments of population trends if twenty five years from now. I think you can plan for certain kinds of industrial forecasting. But you know, could we have predicted SARS or September eleventh or Iraq or anything like that? No. I mean,
0: how about communication with the dead?
1: I don't think that's possible. I don't. I think at the same time, I think okay. Do you know what's really creepy and really weird is a Ouija board. And I don't believe in communicating with the dead and I don't believe in fortune telling or anything like that. But I do think that by doing certain activities like a Ouija board, you open doors and you let genies out that should never have been left out or you allow things to enter your life. So I mean, that just may be superstition. That's not even a religious thought really. And it just, they creep me out. And I think that you just have to be aware of what you let into your life in some way. I mean, also just in I 12 years of being in this weird job description that I'm in, I've met some real vampires. So I think that there are people who have no soul. And I think people who had one but lost one or had one but traded it. That I do believe in.
0: Tell us about the stern and apparently Christian ethos of Jason's father, Reg, and how that shielding, that spiritual armor comes undone.
1: Hmm. There's this expression that was, is actually, it's for guys, that what you do in your life, you get from your mother, and the way you go about doing it, you get from your father. That's certainly true for me. Maybe leave a second here for people to think about their own case. And then the second thing, I believe, is that the the harder you try not to be like your father, the more rapidly you become him. And I think with guys in general, you're always trying to not be your father, but of course, again, you have become him so quickly. And I mean, there's the cliche, you know, the son of the preacher man's always the bad boy in town. And there is a reason for that. And Reg himself, the father, is coming from, he's rebelling against another form of orthodoxy. And, okay, it's Kurt Vonnegut again. It's, you, know, you become what you pretend to be. And at a certain age, he pretended to be pious and harshly judgmental. And then he became that. You know, that, that's one thing I do also believe in. You really do become what you pretend to be.
0: You've written some works of nonfiction. How do you decide when to write fiction or nonfiction? How do you move? Between the two.
1: Oh, do you know what? I don't do fiction, short fiction rather. I, I don't do short fiction or uh, non-fiction anymore. Oh, okay. No, I stopped, but I do now. Um, I have finally built a really good studio next to where I write mm-hmm. and uh, two separate realms. I've been I, trained as a sculptor and an industrial designer and I go into the studio and I work with my hands and I don't let any letters or alphabet Nothing alphanumeric is allowed in there. And it's just books and really large sculpture pieces. And that seems to be a really good mix.
0: Tell us a little bit more about your visual art. I I looked at your website. It's gorgeously designed. Could you tell us how and where the writing and the visual art interconnect, if they Mm. do at all?
1: I think that if you were to do an MRI or some sort of scan of my brain when it was writing, there would be a little hot lobe maybe back down near the reptile stem or whatever that is. And then when I'm working with wood or plastic or whatever, it would be the frontal lobe. Something was going ding, ding, ding or bright red. Um, They come from different seats or seats of the soul or locations in the brain or however you want to describe it. And they actually seem to enhance the other Is that when you're sitting there with wood and mucking about or just painting or whatever, you never really stop writing. I mean, you're always, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's a true cliche. You know, you're getting groceries, you're listening to the radio in the car, whatever. You're still working, you're still doing the book. And uh, it's no different for me. And also, you can only write for two hours a day, right? I mean, really, uh, even on a really, really good day, two hours is it. So... Add on eight for sleep and you got 14 hours the day remaining. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> and I used to do short stories and nonfiction. Now it's just visual art.
0: What book are you currently working on?
1: I'm working on a book right now. Um, it's called Eleanor Rigby. After the Beatles song, of course. And, you know, they're, they're refrain all the lonely people. Where do they come from? And it investigates the life of two incredibly lonely people. And it's, it's not complete yet. You know, I know the last chapter in my head, but it still um, would want to reveal too much more than that at this point.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Who do you read yourself and why? Well, actually, when you're, I'm in the middle of a fertile uh, writing patch, I read the newspaper and that's it. Because you can get a lot of voice. Osmotically, someone else's voice will leak into your own, even if you try hard not to let that happen. But when I am reading, I like to reread. I reread John O'Hara, who's wonderful, who almost no one seems to know about these days. Um, Joan Didion, nonfiction and fiction. I think she's just brilliant. I reread Truman Capote. Not much science fiction, really. Uh, Margaret Drabble, a wonderful writer from England. Nancy Mitford. I also read a lot of nonfiction. I read museum catalogs and uh, texts and essays and interviews that accompany art shows. I, I think that the wonderful thing about the art world is that it assimilated high culture and low culture. Or rather, back in the 1950s, the art world recognized low culture as opposed to high culture and then absorbed it, and there's no problem in dealing with the everyday in the art world. Whereas in the literary world, you ask someone, who's your favorite writer? And now always say, oh, Henry James or, or someone from way, way long ago. And the literary world seems unwilling or is in some kind of weird political grip where it just can't absorb the fact that people eat junk food and, and watch TV. I mean, that's not all I write about, but you have to accept that. That is the world is, that we live in.
0: Thanks very much. We've been talking with Douglas Copeland. His newest book is Hey Nostradamus. Thank you very much, Doug. It's been a
1: pleasure, Rick. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.